Welcome to Inside the Edition from the Chicago Printers Guild. I'm your host, Mary Claire Butler, and each month I'll be bringing you stories of print in Chicago and beyond. In this episode, CPG member Atlan Arceo Witzel speaks with his father, famed artist, printmaker, and educator Rene Arceo. Since 2005, Arceo Press has published hundreds of prints, collaborating with and connecting artists all over the world. Printmaking and community organizing have shaped Renee's entire life and career. Thank you to Renee and Atlan for sharing their conversation. So, um, I'm Atlan Arceo Wetzel, uh, here doing an interview with my dad, Renee Arceo, uh, for the Chicago Printers Guild podcast. Um, and yeah, it's uh, the beginning of September uh, on a nice Saturday, almost afternoon, um, in his studio. And um, I guess you can you can introduce yourself and maybe just uh, you know like how you'd like to be identified, like artista, <laughs> educador, like whatever whatever you wanna. Um. Sure, I'm uh, René Arceo, as you mentioned. I, uh, I've always done uh, print, so I guess I identify myself as a printmaker. Uh, art education and teaching was not necessarily my first choice, as I mentioned earlier. To you, I uh, had studied in Mexico to uh, be an assistant to an architect, so I learned how to do the drafting how to uh, draw to scale uh, the blueprints the buildings and so on and so forth uh, but when i came to chicago in 79 i uh, had the opportunity to apply to the school of the art institute and so that's uh, what i uh, decided to do because what, what i really wanted to do was art i didn't know what type of art i didn't know that i wanted to do pre-making even at that time so I uh, attended uh, the Art Institute from 81 to 85, and during those four years, I went into exploring a lot of different uh, media, different types of classes, where I was learning uh, hand-painted fiber, I was make, uh, doing drawing, painting, uh, I went into ceramics, both uh, throwing with the wheel as well as hand-building, which I enjoy a lot, and I still want to get back to, to that. Um, but then later, th- uh, through one of the uh, summer classes uh, with David Holtzman, mm-hmm. uh, who was uh, teaching uh, uh, relief printing class during the summer of 83, then I took his, uh, his class and then we actually did a mini portfolio together. It was like four by four inch image uh, with all of the students that were there. Uh, and then from that time on, I realized that I wanted to pursue and look more into the pre-making media. Mm-hmm. So then I took different uh, uh, classes, uh, screen printing with uh, Doc Houston. I took uh, lithography with uh, Mark Pascal. I took uh, intaglio classes. <clears throat> I don't remember his uh, name, the teacher where I learned to do uh, sugar lift, uh, mm-hmm. all the varnishes, the soft ground, the etching, and uh, all those uh, media with intaglio yeah. uh, and then I realized that what I really wanted to focus and stay with was uh, the uh, pre-making. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what what was the at, at reason that like <clears throat> was it was it the teachers was it the 
the medium itself just connecting it more a, than anything it else? It was the media itself. And uh, at the time, I was uh, realizing that I had always been subconsciously attracted to that. What had happened is that in Mexico, <clears throat> there has been the tradition of print making, not only from Posada and mm -hmm. uh, uh, late 1800s, uh, up until his death in 1913, but also two other groups that were crucial, the, the Liga de Escritores y Artistas Revolucionarios, mm -hmm. Lear, Lear mm -hmm. from 1920, and then later in 1937, the uh, Taller de Gráfica Popular. People's Graphic uh, Workshop. Uh, People's Graphic Workshop. Uh, uh, that was very strong from 1937 to about 1960. Mm -hmm. uh, it's still there, but it's not the same. Yeah. Uh, people say that it's not every day that you get a Jean Charlot or Alfredo Salce or Leopoldo Mendez yeah. uh, born and, and talented in the graphics to be able to make a difference with the group. But what had happened is that when I was growing up in Mexico, the uh, textbooks that were, we, were given to us when we were in school uh, public school had a lot of illustrations that were wow. graphics, that were images hmm. by Salse, by Leopoldo Mendez, by um, uh, Alberto Beltran was a great oh, illustrator okay. also. Okay. Uh, many other graphic artists uh, uh, that were living and working in Mexico and many of them were associated with uh, Taller de Gráfica Popular. And uh, all of those images, I think, stayed in my mind. Mm. And I didn't uh, revisit that, those until I was in school. During the time that I was in school, I was uh, looking in, into the history, not only in pre-making and other art forms, um, Mesoamerican art with uh, Bob Lesher and the School of the Art Institute. Uh, art was like China. art history class? Or? What's that? There's an art history class? Or? Uh, history class, yeah. uh, classes that I took there, yeah. yeah. Uh, learning about the Italian Renaissance, learning about different techniques with uh, uh, Frank Piatek. He, he taught uh, uh, painting materials and techniques. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to do tempera, how to, uh, how oils were work, acrylic, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the different supports and different uh, finishes and varnishes that we used to finish uh, the paintings. Yeah. Um, so I was learning those techniques at the same time I was refreshing myself and relearning what I had seen before uh, in the textbooks and learning more about each of the artists. Some of them were still alive, like uh, Alfredo Salce, who had to be 93, 95 years old. Mm -hmm. And I had a chance to visit him because I work for the Mexican uh, Art Museum in Chicago. And I organized in 87 uh, the only retrospective exhibition of his sure. work in Chicago with 113 pieces. Yeah. And uh, I got a chance to meet, uh, who happens to be from my home, State Michoacan, uh -huh. and then another artist also from my home state is Adolfo Meshiak, that uh -huh. to me was kind of like a myth, because I had hmm. seen many images of uh, his works, and yeah. one particular that comes to mind that, that is very popular even nowadays is the one that he did of a friend who was a, uh, I don't think he was a teacher, but he wanted to represent a teacher uh -huh. that was not allowed to speak, so he did a, a drawing of the face of a friend of his, and then he put a rope first around the mouth and drew it, and he liked it. Then he changed it to a chain and put a lock. Hmm. And the lock says, Made in USA. Hmm. So it was like dealing with the freedom of expression uh, issue. Yeah. They became very, very popular. It was a line of God, uh, yeah. piece. Yeah. So I got a chance to meet him and have a relationship huh. with him. He and his wife participated in some of the print portfolios that I've done. 
since uh, establishing our sale press in yeah. 2005. Yeah. So I've had this uh, uh, reconnecting with my past and reconnecting uh -huh. with these people that were my heroes as far as freemakers were concerned. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the exploration of, of the different print media and reconnecting with those printmakers that mostly did linocuts, although many did uh, other art forms, even painting and sculptures. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I decided to, to stay with uh, printmaking. And after I graduated, I was actually uh, continuing to make prints. A lot of what I was studying to do was screen prints, but screen prints at that time was all oil-based. Yeah. And there was all the fumes and everything else. Yeah. And the school, you have the system for ventilation, everything sure. else at home, I did it. Sure, yeah, because when you go into an institution like that, they are prepared to handle all the, you know, disposal mm -hmm. of chemicals and, you know, cleaning everything Solvents. and the air exchange mm -hmm. and like all of those things. Yeah. So, so, and especially because now when you look at screen printing, screen printing is like all those like oil based methods is people don't use them anymore like completely they and if and if they do people are like trying to get rid of materials because they're like I don't know what to do with this exactly so at the time I was uh, starting to work in the um, uh, back porch so I opened all the windows and everything else and I was still using the respirator uh -huh. I got to the point when I said this there is no need for this I, this is uh, uh -huh. crazy so I stopped uh, doing screen printing because of that mm -hmm. And then decided to do uh, more direct media, which was linocuts and woodcuts that uh -huh. I can actually even print by hand. Yeah. But I was able to actually get a, a etching press from Mexico through a friend, yeah. Esperanza Gama. Her uh, father was building them, uh, making them in Guadalajara City, yeah. based on another common friend that asked the father if he could copy the French press that she had. Uh -huh. And you, and when you say copy, you mean like the design of it? The or? design, everything, just duplicate whatever he saw, all the parts, because the father knew how to work metal. Uh -huh. In Spanish, it's called tornero. Uh -huh. It means that you can take any piece of metal and cut and shape it in any shape that you want. Uh -huh. So he said, yes, yes, yes. And, and they were trying to explain to him, what you need to do is be concerned about this, this, and that, the pressure. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he went and did it and looked exactly the same, yeah. but he didn't, the pressure didn't work properly because he didn't <laughs> listen. Sure. So after that, he uh, tried it again and did it uh, correctly. So he made a lot of presses for a lot of people there in the, the city of Guadalajara. Huh which is the second largest city in Mexico, more than 4 million people, and uh, also for other artists in other, in other regions. So yeah. uh, when uh, Esperanza told me uh, about him making them, I said, can I buy one? And I said, how much are they? She said, there's this amount, uh, but I can get him to give you a discount, at least $1,000, they're perfect, yeah. then I'll, I'll buy it. So I think I bought it for $1,500. And what? What year was that? And then I paid $500 for shipping it. Oof. So somebody went to pick it up, wrapped it, took it to the border. They did all the paperwork, sure. put it on, uh, Through customs on a truck and delivered it to the house Yeah. for 500 So yeah, paid a total of 2000 They must have been uh, in the mid-90s. Yeah. In the mid-90s. So at, at least 25 years ago, yeah, or much longer than that. So, so you, so you had graduated school and were trying to work out how to like keep making work. What were you? Mm -hmm. Was was that your like job endeavor? Was to like 
try and keep making work or what were you doing while that was going on and then how did you get to the point where you decided like I want to like start printing stuff in the house like or how did you get to the point to decide like I want to start my own press um well they came later with my own press uh having my own studio I always dreamt of having my own studio my sure. own work space what happened is that in 85 by 1985 I graduated and by that time I had already met the founders of the uh, National Museum of Mexican Art mm -hmm. um, and they had hired me already to organize an exhibition because by that time the last two years that I was at the School of the Art Institute I was getting a, a, a part-time job mm -hmm to create a gallery that this other friend and I decided to start in Pilsen. It was called Galleria Inkworks, mm -hmm. Inkworks Gallery, which was in, the, in a space that this friend Beto Barrera had. He was renting a second floor in Pilsen uh, on Bishop and 18th Street, uh, just south of uh, Jumping Bean Cafe that everybody uh, knows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a second floor, he had a commercial print shop that was catering to alternative uh, candidates, independent candidates, uh, like Harold Washington, sure. uh, um, uh, Rui Lozano, uh -huh. and many other independents. Sure, sure. But half of the space he was not using, and mm. I went and approached him and I said, can we use this half of the space since you're not using it and turn it into a gallery uh, so that we can have a space for local artists since we don't have access to the mainstream galleries? Yeah. He said, no, no, no. Two weeks later, he called me and said, let's do it. I think it's a good <laughs> idea. So in 1984, we opened a gallery, and it was around for about three or four years. Mm -hmm. And during that time, the uh, OSWA, Organización en Solidaridad con la Gente de Guatemala. Uh -huh. So it was uh, Guatemalan uh, refugees that were here, Salvadorians many other groups that were using the space to do fundraiser events mm. because this is during the time of the 80s there were the whole turmoil in the in sure. central america sure yeah and, and with all the u.s involvement there yeah too. the contras and el salvador and everything yeah. else uh somoza and so on and so um the mexican uh museum invited me to curate an exhibition there for one of the mexican independent celebrations they like uh, they like the job that i did and based on that, they said, we would like to hire you to work full time mm -hmm. to do exhibitions. And I yeah. said, what? Yeah. You're going to hire me to do what I'm doing here for free, organizing exhibitions, bringing artwork, putting <laughs> it up on walls, and then yeah. I get paid? Yeah. I thought, this yeah. is great. Because I never thought that I would be making yeah. a living uh, being an arts administrator. Sure. I didn't really study to be an arts administrator. Sure, I was, yeah. I was an, uh, studying to be an artist uh, with a uh, focus on pre-making. Although the last two years I decided I wanted to get a teaching certificate mm -hmm. in case that I was be, I will become a starving artist, I will have something to fall sure. back on, yeah. which I in fact did uh, uh, in 2000 when I uh, yeah. uh, started working in, uh, in education, being an art teacher for 20 years. Sure. Um, so <clears throat> that's how it was that I started working with, um, with the museum. Through the museum, I met many artists in different parts of the United States and different parts of Mexico sure. because we used to travel to borrow exhibitions, to meet artists, to invite, uh, and so on and so forth. Sure. Um, <clears throat> and during those years, uh, 
a friend of mine uh, that has passed away since from Durango, uh, Tomas Bringas, mm -hmm. had the idea, why don't we uh, uh, bring together and create a studio, bring uh, uh, together a, a pre-maker collaborative. Yeah. And so we did in 1990, created a, a Talleres Mexicano de Grabado, Mexican pre-making workshop, mm -hmm. uh, that eventually became Taller Mestizarte, Grafica, mm -hmm. and then later was changed again to um, Taller Articultura Carlos Cortez, mm -hmm. which is the same way that it's across from the Jumping Bean Cafe. Yeah, so yeah. It, it's, it still exists, but it doesn't really work. It went through several sure. phases. I was with the group only for about six years yeah. uh, as the president and running things, and as usual with collectives. Um, there is only two or three people that are always behind the ones sure. that are coming sure. cleaning painting hanging the show yeah. keeping the mailing list and doing those sorts of things and then yeah. there is a larger group you know that are a little more distant yeah. so by then um i was already i have all i had always done uh, artwork on my own at yeah. home yeah. i did acrylic painting i did a lot of uh, drawings uh and whenever possible i did some prints but they were mostly hand printed when i was able to get my etching press then i was able to have my my studio sure. and be able to uh, create larger prints because uh, the size of the bed was uh good size and that was something that i always wanted to yeah. to do so i have always done all along uh prints on the side this is the first time now uh, this summer that I am able to do it <laughs> a full-time basis and just do nothing but that although there's other responsibilities sure. that I have at home sure. with uh, with Olinda yeah the teenager the 15 year old yeah um, but so then yeah so so kind of like community involvement in a lot of different like smaller groups mm -hmm. and then going into the museum and then these collectives are happening and you're doing work from home and then how does how does Arceo Press like start what's what's the impetus for that? The, that one in 2003 uh, I had been uh, volunteering for Casa Michoacan uh -huh. the House of Culture from Casa Michoacan uh, that opened on uh, in Pilsen on uh, uh, Blue Island and 18th Street mm -hmm. I had volunteered to organize exhibitions uh, and uh, we did a binational collaboration with a group of artists in the, in the city of Morelia and a group of artists here. And actually, two other artists, uh, Seattle, uh, Alfredo Reguin, and I forget who else. Uh, somebody was in Los Angeles. Um, can't think of his name, Rodriguez. Mm -hmm. And so it was six artists uh, from Michoacan. They were born in Michoacan but living in the United States and six that were still living there. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to create art that reflect their art experiences of being from Michoacan but also being in a different place. Yeah. It was called uh, Bajo un mismo cielo, uh -huh. under the same sky. Yeah. And uh, it was a collaboration that uh, involved a new print shop in the town of Pascuaro. Uh -huh and uh, they were the ones that pulled the additions for most of the artists. I pulled my own here. And uh, artists were invited to actually go and work on that during the time I couldn't because I was still uh, working full time. Sure. And uh, based on that collaboration and the portfolio that was created, 
uh, I decided to the following year start organizing what became Arceo Press mm -hmm. and uh, also because I have met artists not only in Mexico but also in Canada and Spain and France uh, with the years that I met all the printmakers that I thought why don't I invite artists from different nations and choose a theme and yeah. based on that then we can uh, create uh, print portfolios uh -huh. so so in 2004 I started, uh, in 2005 I did the first portfolio which was called Mnemonic to aid the memory. Mm. And that was based on a group of friends including Jose Andreu and other artists that have participated with me in almost each one. Uh, that we were thinking of what would be relevant, what could be something of a common theme that could bring all the artists to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So I've done about 14 uh, print portfolios, almost yeah. uh, one per year more or less. Yeah. They have involved artists um, from Puerto Rico, from Costa Rica, Canada, Mexico, United States, Spain, and France so far. <laughs> So, so it was around organizing portfolios and having that kind of like mm -hmm. exchange between artists to see what other people are thinking of when you give them that yeah. kind of topic to but think about. But also, so there would be some cross-fertilization and some uh, uh, networking of artists that are interested in the same media as printmakers, but also seeking out opportunities to exhibit. The idea was to get other venues to exhibit because once right. the artists yeah. receive their own portfolio for having collaborated and they were to try to look for uh, opportunities to exhibit mm -hmm. so such has been the case that we've been able to exhibit through some of the connections their artists had uh, the portfolios in many different uh, places and uh, throughout Mexico and different uh, universities and cultural centers and museums in the United States yeah. uh, in Florence in Paris and uh, um, in Madrid yeah um, makes the world a lot smaller mostly too. yes it does it does and that's the idea and that's the beauty of prints like you have multiples right. you're able to share with different artists it's easy to send them because uh -huh. you know it's like an oversized flat book them. flat package instead right. of having mats and frames and insurance and everything else yeah. and costly creating everything else makes it more more doable most more uh, possible yeah so that's what I was doing and kind of subsidizing it during the time that I was working. Now I had kind of stopped since I wanted to retire and have retired since. Yeah. I've been thinking twice about how to uh, actually do uh, that part. Although I always sold two, sometimes only one portfolio and there was mm -hmm. enough to pay for the expenses right. because I was paying for the paper. I was uh, commissioning uh, uh, Las Cajas. Yeah, the boxes that are handmade, acid-free, uh -huh. uh, that were made always in, in Morelia. Yeah. Uh, and, and so each of the artists was receiving that, and the, the artists didn't pay any, any anything. Right. They didn't contribute any money, yeah. but they pulled the additions. Mm -hmm. uh, and they pay to send the additions uh, to me, and then I would pay to send them first the paper and then the uh, finished uh, portfolio. So. It was more than anything time on my part than than anything else. Sure, yeah. uh, although I've seen how the people try to do portfolios and they've halfway done them and then finally they finished and then they said, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. To me, it's a second nature. I've done it so many times yeah. that I don't really uh, think much about it and, uh, to get it done. Yeah. So well, I you've do. You've gotten used to doing that, right? Like, exactly. You build the practice of how how you reach out to people, how right. you like 
you know do the like logistics of Mm -hmm. who's getting stuff the theme Mm -hmm. you know what's required of it but it's because then once you once you start to figure that kind of thing out i think in a practice it changes like you you get a baseline of how you can operate Mm -hmm. and then it becomes more fun too because then it's you know it's like uh, working towards the collective good of, of you know, doing the project and exactly. enjoying what people put in on their part yeah. and what you can do on yours, too. Exactly. And trying to get some new faces, uh, some young artists mm-hmm. uh, mixing to the ones that were more established. Yeah. Um, uh, not only getting people from other other countries as well. I wanted to mention something else and uh, Sorry. Uh, I lost uh, uh, track of that. Um, <laughs> Well, because I think also that I think there's a a part of print culture that is very distinct because there is it's like so centralized on community based Mm -hmm. work because Mm -hmm. to have a print shop is expensive. Like it's Mm -hmm. expensive to get things up and running in a condition and maintain them. Mm -hmm. And so when you can share a space with people or... Mm -hmm you know like run additions with people or Mm -hmm. collaborate in some respect that makes it Mm -hmm. somewhat easier like more worthwhile to do it Mm -hmm. it's it's so interesting because you know you look at something like like painting as a discipline unless you're doing something like mural painting Mm -hmm. it's it's oftentimes very solitary Mm -hmm. right it's like very individualized yeah that's uh yeah that's true uh, and it is one of the reasons why I decided to uh, to do more uh, print making. Well, two two parts. One is that is when cre- you create multiples, you make work more accessible. Yeah. Instead of making a single painting, a right. single sculpture that may take you two four weeks, yeah. and you have to sell it for a much higher price to a single person or a single family, sure. then you can create an addition that in itself it has its own beauty. Yeah. And two, I really enjoy the manual part. Uh, if you saw mm-hmm. my my book, uh, there is an article that talks about m- me not necessarily so much as an artist, but as an artesano, uh-huh. as, as uh, somebody that works with his hands. Yeah. And I enjoyed tremendously the whole process of actually carving, whether it's a wood or linoleum, and yeah. creating lines and textures. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed that that process. I remember one of my classmates at the art institute had said that he liked very much the wood that I was carving, he said, you should do that as a final piece, not necessarily as a uh-huh. as a, a master for replicating and creating the, the prints, which yeah. was interesting. Yeah, the block itself. I mm-hmm. I think the more time I spend like making woodcuts and stuff mm-hmm. like that, the object of the block itself becomes more and more interesting as like, mm-hmm. well, because it's, I think it's also that craft too mm-hmm. that you're talking about, like, in being an artis- artesano like or thinking of making art in that mm-hmm. way I think is it's interesting because it puts it puts like the craft of it in printmaking which I think people respect a lot like mm-hmm. because it is so process oriented mm-hmm. um, and not that other like disciplines are not process oriented but it's very it's very like forward that mm-hmm. you know when you make a piece you're gonna have to go through the whole process unless you're gonna you know pass it off to a printer and you're just gonna make mm-hmm. the block or get the paper so and that's the, pulls the addition yeah. yeah which yeah, is yeah. which is a neat thing too because I think it's 
not only it's like humbling in a way that that I think also speaks back to the like community aspect of it mm-hmm. to where it's like you are contributing but you are not the end all be all necessarily mm-hmm. of like making the work mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though you're representing yourself to a certain extent mm-hmm. yeah definitely so yeah well I was remembering that some of the earlier graphic pieces that I uh, did were actually pieces that I created on the, on the on the wall at the house when I was in Guadalajara and I was attracted to the high contrast of black and white like the images of Che Guevara that mm-hmm. became so famous and so popular yeah. and and other writers and, and, and heroes at, at the time yeah. uh, so that always carries uh, the, the part of the, the community and the social commitment uh-huh. and the social responsibility and yeah. And I, I was attracted to that, especially in the early years when I was a teenager, I was exposed to uh, different philosophies and I wanted to be more of a radical leftist. Sure. And so there was more involvement in uh, community organizations yeah. uh, and the images that I was creating were more with that. When I arrived also, when I was studying the Art Institute, one of the uh, jobs that I had was with this uh, immigrant organization, um, can't think of the name right now. Um, that was working with immigrants in in Chicago, and I so I was working in creating posters mm-hmm. and designing uh, leaflets, flyers, brochures, mm-hmm. announcements uh, related to all the different activities that we're doing and and uh, and creating. Yeah. And and so I've I've I continued to kind of work in a different level with community organizations and museums. Sure. Uh, I became a member of the, of the Chicago Society of Artists mm-hmm. and with them uh, over the last eight years I've done two portfolios with them one about Chicago and one about the state of Illinois yeah and then also uh, the uh, uh, Ukrainian Institute of Modern mm-hmm. Art I've uh, had a good collaboration with them I've exhibited there uh, in their space and when they came to look at my work at my studio I showed them some of the portfolios and got the idea well what if you work with us so that we can create a portfolio and we can use it as, mm-hmm. as a fundraising event for our institution yeah. we can invite the artists that we work with and yeah. then we'll like to invite you and you can invite a few other artists to to participate so I've called on those uh, three collaborations outside what is only solidly uh, at Sego Press but I've been the one that has coordinated that has worked with all the details uh, on that and it's also uh, an effort to get which is the two things that I (laughs) have forgotten one was those collaborations and the other thing is to introduce artists who may not be printmakers to the print media yeah. There was an impetus that we had when we established in 1990 the Mexican Premaker Workshop that it didn't have to be a place for Mexicans since most of us were Mexicans establishing that place, that's what we call it that. Uh-huh. But it was open to everybody, including <laughs> one of the members who was a, a New Yorican, uh-huh. uh, Benjamin Varela. And he never had any problem with the name as long as we can were printing it. He was sure. uh, there, able sure. to, to do work and everybody else. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to get painters, photographers, and artists in other media to come in and expose them uh, to different print media that they can learn and they can produce work there. Yeah. And with that group, for example, we had uh, Carlos Cortez uh, Press that he got in somewhere that he actually had donated uh-huh. to the group. And that was yeah. the main 
means of, of uh, uh, pulling prints uh, with a tayer. Yeah. And it's still there as far as I know with, uh, with wow. the same uh, group. Uh, yeah. uh, he had said that, uh, that he was donating it for the group as long as he was going to stay there for a community uh, benefit. Sure. Once it dissolves or whatever, then somebody should be responsible to getting it to somebody else that can use it in some community base yeah. place. I think so. I think a th one thing you mentioned that feels to me like it's resurging a little bit of you know trying to work with activists and organizers and community organizations right now, um, and and the the role that printmakers and presses um, are like taking up to do that kind of work that I think was more. It was like more regularly done in in the respect of like hiring an artist to do work for this informational like pamphlet or mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. because the way that we print nowadays at least i think in like the popular imagination of people outside mm -hmm. the printmaking sphere outside of like art making they're thinking about it as you know something that you go to like kinkos and you get things printed but mm -hmm. i think there's a lot of outcry for the like visual interest and like dynamism that you can get from mm -hmm. actually having you know working artists and designers to do you know that you know whether it be like you know democratic socialists mm -hmm. of america or something like mm -hmm. that or you know whatever you know your local um community organization like mutual mm -hmm. aid fund or something like that that's where the role of a print shop is i don't know it feels it feels like being re-energized in a way that yeah it, it's exciting i think it's a natural extension of of uh, printmaking and it has been such a long tradition that goes back at least 100 years sure, yeah not only in mexico but in other parts of latin america and within uh, collectives <coughs> and networks in the United States. For mm -hmm. example, I belong to the Consejo Gráfico Nacional, mm -hmm. uh, National Graphic Council, that is a network of loosely organized uh, print shops from across the United States, and we produce some portfolios from time to time. Uh, uh, one was on issues of the border, one was paying uh, homage to the uh, master printmakers that have inspired us mm -hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. But individual artists and collectives, uh, I think, are very interested in doing yeah. uh, a work that has to do with communities, uh, work that reflects the times uh, that we yeah. are living through. Yeah. Uh, some artists more than others. More than others. Uh, in general, there are, I think there are some number of collectives there are uh, very interested in, in in dealing with social, political, economic uh, yeah. uh, aspects of the of the society, yeah. and others that tend to uh, do more the uh, static uh, artistic uh, explorations. Uh, and sometimes it's a combination of the of the two. Uh, so it's uh, it's something that I think a lot of printmakers uh, experience at some point in time. Uh, through their artistic careers and some more than others. Uh, I know that I used to do a lot of political work uh, in the beginning with against uh, nuclear 
uh, uh, power mm-hmm. and its consequences uh, about injustice, about economy. And in the last uh, uh, 10 years or so, I've started to kind of go back to some of those uh, uh, issues, uh, especially when I get invitations from other friends or from mm-hmm. collectives that are doing portfolios, yeah. uh, like the one uh, right now with the... Uh, sure, Samford University. Uh-huh, yeah. with uh, Defer... Uh, the Dream uh, Defer. Dream, dream Defer. Yeah. Uh, there was a friend that organized in Triton College also an exhibition about the uh, the uh, displacement of, uh, of communities, uh, working class communities that are being displaced, and particularly in Pilsen. Sure. So he organized an exhibition and I did a print based on, uh, on that uh, experience that I've seen. So. I'm doing. I see myself doing more and more uh, lately because of those issues that are out there that sure. have become very much to the forefront of, of uh, society in general. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I think the graphic arts is a perfect vehicle for for that. As I said, you know, I think that it's been for historically going hand in hand. Uh, if you look at the uh, uh, TGP, the Popular Graphic Workshop, they, they uh, in a way, they were the perfect collective. Uh, one, because there were many talented graphic artists mm-hmm. that came from all over the world, like sure. Elizabeth Catlett from the United States, and uh, Pablo Higgins from the Southwest, and John Charlotte from France, and, and many others that would involve uh, with the graphic production in Mexico, but also because they sat on a weekend uh, around the table, they thought, well, what is in the news? What are the issues sure. of the day? Sure. What do we need to respond to? Then, who is interested in creating something? Then, creating the drawings and having another meeting saying, okay, this has potential, this could be, can you develop it more? Yeah. And then create something. And they created all the, the, the ones that were chosen. And then, once they had finished the piece, whether it was the line of cut, political, whatever, they chose the one that officially was going to be in a way mass produced but it's actually done by hand not by by machine and then they were actually taking it out and uh, posting it it every wall on the walls on the streets and and they were they were not signed so you will see the images of of Mendes or Salce and everybody else you didn't know whose work it was maybe you recognize this style and actually sometimes one of the artists will draw the image create the composition, the idea, and another one will actually take it home and carve it. Yeah. So yeah. such was the case of one of the pieces that was done by uh, by Salse, which I didn't know when I was interviewing sure. him. He said, oh yeah, uh, Leopoldo Mendes liked it so much, he took it with him one uh, day. <laughs> he came back next day and the line of card was completely finished. And it uh. was a group of uh, men that were unemployed, that were uh, uh, very close to one another, tied in a long, long line uh-huh. and going to ask for a job or get a job or sure, sure. for food or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and whatever, an empl- unemployment line exactly. or something yeah, like yeah. that. So, so it was that level of uh, collaboration, the level of uh, respect that they had for one another yeah. uh, and the camaraderie that existed that I think it was uh, in many ways uh, unique. There's yeah. probably all the collective groups that are doing work in a similar way, I, I don't know. Sure. But... Uh, but it, it was it was not only the idea of the collective, but it was a commitment to the issues of the day. Sure. If it was against uh, uh, 
Francisco Franco, uh, yeah, sure. the fascism. Because uh, uh, they did a portfolio uh, around yeah. that, right? Against uh, uh, Hitler, uh -huh. uh, Mussolini, yeah. uh, issues of uh, killing of teachers in yeah. Mexico. Yeah. Uh, you and name it. They did a lot of like labor organi organization posters oh, yeah. stuff and like, uh, yeah. like El Partido Comunista. There were there were some yeah, especially because some of them were members of, of the Communist Party. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But they were mostly issues that were relevant to the sure. society. Sure. Uh, for example, many of them had been part of the uh, cultural brigades, mm -hmm. which during uh, Lázaro Cárdenas' presidency in the late thirties, uh, yeah. he sent artists to explore the different regions of Mexico that right. had never been explored. Sure, sure. And so, for example, this guy that I keep bringing up, Salse, yeah. uh, he went to Tabasco, he went to Yucatan, yeah. uh, he went to regions that, yeah. that and, and he created images that lady people saw and they said, this is what exists, this is what is out there. Yeah. And, and this is one of the reasons why, for example, uh, Diego Rivera ended up being interested in going and exploring and checking uh, uh, places that were far away from uh, the city of Mexico, the big uh, urban uh, center. Yeah. And that's how they started coming across uh, the huipiles from, the, uh, from Oaxaca, from the Tehuanas. Uh -huh. um, uh -huh. uh, but Rivera was not the first one to bring them. It was, in fact, uh, Miguel Covarrubias, uh -huh. who was kind of like a self-taught, uh, explorer, self-taught, uh, archaeologist and ethnographer. Hmm. He went to Bali and wrote a book about Bali. He went to Harlem and wrote a book uh, and illustrated with lithographs huh. uh, books. Yeah. He, uh, when he was in New York, he uh, illustrated for Vogue uh, magazine. Hmm. They're amazing cartoons. You Crazy. have to look at his work. Yeah. Miguel Covarrubias. Uh -huh. And uh, he went to the many regions that were unexplored in Mexico and he started bringing this jewelry and bringing all these huipiles and Frida Kahlo says, I like them. And he started <laughs> wearing them in openings yeah. and all these connections that were happening there in the uh, 20s, 30s yeah. and 40s. Um, yeah, like discovery of part of the cultures that weren't like broadly mm -hmm. known about or understood or, you know. Exactly. But what I was going to also with these uh, culture brigades was also that people were going and in, in some cases was in a little town, what was needed? Yeah. Well, we need to repaint these benches that are all around the plaza. Okay, uh -huh. let's paint them. The yeah. artists will paint them. Sure. And uh, they will want a mural here reflecting this. Then they will work with them and they will create a mural. Uh -huh. uh, or they wanted to learn drawing. They wanted to learn painting. So they did that in little communities, small towns, not necessarily only big uh, big cities. So they wanted to, to reach out to all the different uh, uh, communities. But this was after meeting with the people in the towns and see what the needs were that they could sure. make a difference instead of coming in imposing something that they wanted to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I was doing a lot of research to do like a little presentation about um, the Tair and there was just like so much work that I was I was really like excited about that was like leaflet and pamphlet kind of stuff. Yeah. Actually, in June, there was um. I did that one from. Instructions. Well, it's made of the. 
well, you can see the cereal box, but the. Uh, oh, you mean this? Uh huh. And that's like a that's like the back of a paper pad. Right. Um, but the directions were from. I forget where I got them from. I have a book of of like how to do all the like the Japanese style, uh -huh. which is probably also what you like learned how to do too. No. Yeah. No. Casi lo mismo, no. El uh, estilo es. No. Um, it's a más estilo japonés. This is the, yeah. But what I learned was to uh, make the classical uh, way of bookbinding, which means with the spine and the rib. So completely closed and leather or imitation leather. Uh -huh. It was for uh, a man that lived in a neighborhood in Guadalajara and he was doing the official documents of the civil registry huh. in the city of Guadalajara. Yeah. So they were um, paying him to bind uh, all those documents. Huh. So he was uh, showing me how to do it. So I learned with him how to do all the sewing, how he made the holes on the edge and then you have to sew it in a particular way and then how he added a cover and then uh, uh, not only the cardboard but also the cover uh -huh. itself and then uh, how he was cut on the edges refilar they call it in Spanish huh. and then uh, he actually took a little bit of cotton and some uh, ink I, I guess it was and he tapped on oh. the sides I think it was the uh, mostly yellow and a little bit of blue which are the uh, colors uh, that are identified as Tero Jalisco. Uh -huh. So I wow. think that's why he uh, ended up doing that. And from there I took some interest and learned how to do different uh, different styles. Yeah. And I think at the same time I took a class in junior high uh -huh. and I actually ended up building like a little table and it looks like a goalie for soccer, mm -hmm. just like that. And the way you do is you tie on the top the string at the top and then you tie it in the bottom and then once you have all the paper folded that you want you cut you kind of sew ah uh, yeah yeah i have a very with like a jeweler fine saw. Saw. Yeah, exactly yeah 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 i saw on it however many ribs i want and then i sew them together and there uh -huh. is different styles that you can uh sew different kinds of kind of weaving yeah, yeah. that you can do some are more pronounced than others. Yeah. So that's crazy. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the many things that I was learning in uh, secundary, as they call it. Uh -huh. Another thing was uh, learning how to fabricate bookshelves. Whoa. With this very old uh, guy that was a master carpenter, and he was showing us in his own way how to do it, and it was it was cool. Whoa. It was just a simple bookshelf with four legs simple rectangle and then uh, another smaller part I think huh. I don't ever know what ever happened to that bookshelf because we each made one and then learning how to uh, do an electrical panel uh -huh. that uh, those uh, panels they have lots of little holes yeah. and you attach different components the wire and how everything turns on and off and then at the end you have to demonstrate that it actually works and everything is connected correctly mm. so that's how I learned some basic electric electricity whoa that's crazy <laughs> well because like uh, nowadays it feels like that's not you have to like decide to 
want to do that in in school or even know. in high school it would be high yeah. school here it would be like a, junior high, yeah. right right no even that too but there was part of the there's, there was uh, a lot of options uh, a long time ago even here in chicago public schools with yeah. those uh, vocational high schools mm -hmm. vocational high schools in the south side yeah Simeon. this friend like, uh, francisco mendoza used to mm -hmm. uh, go to chicago vocational CVS, Chicago Vocational School. Yeah. And that's where he uh, learned some trades as well. Yeah, yeah. Huh. But all of that is, has been long gone. Yeah. But there are other countries, like there are this uh, country in Poland, they uh, have students that want to go to college, and yeah. then you have to test. You have to pass. Yeah. If you really are not the kind of student that will really be able to manage and pass the test yeah. then your other option is to go to trade school yeah so they have already the trade school set up to go for those who will be more inclined to do electricity carpentry plumbing whatever it is yeah and then they go and train get the training and go and work others yeah. then may go into the other yeah. uh, long schooling of law and many other yeah things well in europe like in como el primo in España, mm -hmm. he like that's the kind of testing they do there too, just mm -hmm. for like to get into a school, mm -hmm. or in England too. It's like that. It's the the system is completely different mm -hmm. and like very like sp like hyper specific to whatever. Like you're gonna try out through this test to do this mm -hmm. kind of thing, or or it's like at the end of high school you decide that you want to like try this school so the last two years mm -hmm. you like focus on doing classes that pertain to that or something well that's what i did in mexico yeah but i think in in europe i think it may start a little earlier kind of guiding them into that well when i did high school in mexico the last two years i i had to focus on a particular area for what i wanted to do and at the time i wanted to do architecture mm -hmm. Uh, so I learned how to uh, read blueprints, uh, I learned how to draw them to scale, mm -hmm. learn how to do the elevation of a building of a house, show the electrical lines, the water, mm -hmm. uh, source, everything. And then cutting the, the whole building in a particular place and showing if you were looking up north, mm -hmm. what would it look like? So I had yeah. to do all of that. And also I took classes on... Uh, 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 precision tools hmm. I don't remember what they are called but tools that you can measure uh, hundred or, or, or thousand of a millimeter oh like a micrometer or mm -hmm. something. Yeah. yeah that um, uh, because it was part of a, the industrial area they call it yeah there was the administrative there was biology um, uh, I forget what other ones uh, there were mm -hmm. So I was in this one with several of my friends that were going into engineering and that. So yeah. we had to learn how to design certain uh, uh, tools, parts yeah. for machines, for doing different kinds of things. Huh. So, but my area was more uh, the uh, the uh, drawing and the blueprints and yeah. learning all of, all of that. Like the drafting kind of the stuff. The drafting, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was done on what huh. they call, we call uh, onion paper. Uh -huh. onion paper and it was done with the ink and different uh, types of uh, uh, point metal points that you attach to this little holder and then you ink put the ink and uh -huh. do it away and now it's all done with computers yeah. and other yeah. 
another world. Um, okay, that's cool. <laughs> you didn't know those things. No, um, um, I wanted to talk with you about this piece that what is what is it called? Uh, this is called uh, El Sueño del Pescador, the mm. Fisherman's Dream. Yeah, um, and it's it's relief, um, which is your primary medium and lino cut as well, mm -hmm. um, preferred method. But um, I saw you share a picture of it, and uh, I was intrigued because one, it's it's um it's two color but it's doing something that i think i don't know it's 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 interesting the way that the layers of it overlap in a way that's not like they they pay attention to each other but they don't mm -hmm. necessarily like fit mm -hmm. exactly how you would expect them to in a mm -hmm. way that is really playful right um yeah, yeah. more of a loose registration in uh -huh. a way yeah uh, and that is because, uh, as I mentioned, uh, it's uh, an old piece that I had uh, done an edition from, uh, a very short, small edition, I remember, maybe 15 and 20 at the most. Mm. And I ran out of it, so I wanted to uh, reuse the same main uh, block and then do something with the background. So I quickly uh, created a, a second uh, plate. Uh, but I wanted it to be something uh, loose, uh, like you said. Mm -hmm. So there is parts that overlap. I wanted to create a third color. Uh, the background is mostly this uh, medium uh, blue. Mm -hmm. And then I did a bright red on top of that while it was actually still fresh. I mm -hmm. did them uh, the same day yesterday. And so I got this uh, third color that is sort of like a, a dark, deep uh, purple. Mm -hmm. uh, over these so what it is is a, a stylized uh, person that seems to be inside the water the whole thing is covered with water and he has uh, his arms extended uh, to the left is uh, he's holding a fish he has caught mm -hmm. and there is a, a fish line that goes from the mouth and the hook of the red fish yeah. all the way across to his other hand yeah. and right below his uh, right hand is a bottle of uh, tequila which is actually called tequila arceo uh -huh. which there is no such thing i found that there is some other liquid by the last name of arceo that is actually sold in campeche uh -huh. Uh, but it's more of a fruit liquid than, oh. than this. Uh, I included uh, the, the tequila because it's something that I enjoy from time to time. I like to have a shot or two, <laughs> uh, especially if a good tequila. I, my family comes from a region right near uh, the, the town where they produce the tequila, the traditional one, yeah. and in the state of Jalisco. Uh, and I never really uh, developed a taste for it until I was uh, an adult and I realized that there were other types of tequilas, not the cheap Jose Cuervo. <laughs> there are other very smooth, sophisticated, full-flavored uh, tequilas that I have learned to uh, to appreciate. Um, yeah. uh, through a friend, Jose Andreo, that has... Uh, uh, kind of introduced me to many many other brands and other brands that I have discovered myself. Yeah. So there is other kind of suggested ideas of all the fish that are mm -hmm. uh, behind, above, and below the the uh, composition. Yeah. Uh, and it's and it's they do, they they do this thing, which like I since I was little I remember 
like seeing the way you make lines interact that mm-hmm. they like they like break the plane in a in a mm-hmm. way that like you can recognize the form but it's like it's in between all of them at the same time mm-hmm. and yeah there are there are there are part of the form in some cases but then yeah. it extends and goes beyond yeah. and some parts it actually creates sort of like just like a texture mm-hmm. uh instead of having a solid background color the blue then you have the other red that was uh layover so you have a, a purple and in some cases you see part of the red and part of the the purple line so it goes in and out uh, and breaks up yeah. yeah creating textures in 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 a way is there is there a reason for making the the fishermen is there like a inspiration for the well fish fishermen are uh growing up for example in my hometown in the state of michoacan i i don't remember when i learned to swim mm-hmm. uh, my town is right by the shore of lake chapala which is the largest lake in mexico and i've always known how to swim i don't remember when i started mm-hmm. to, to swim so swimming is second nature to me yeah. uh my uncles I uh, used to be fishermen and I remember my father sending me with one of them to on a long canoe to fish but I have motion sickness uh-huh. so I didn't do very well uh, needless to say I didn't go back <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but I remember them uh, fishing with uh, these baskets that were made mm-hmm. in my hometown with haras it's a, this particular type of wood that is very strong and doesn't deteriorate so fast yeah. and how they made sort of like a egg shape very large at least uh, uh, 36 inches long yeah. and they put the bait inside which was mostly coagulated uh, blood I think it was Whoa. that they put inside and then they dropped them uh, uh, in the water and then they will come back uh, I don't know a day or two or three sure. and they will come back they will pull the baskets and there is a way for the fish to go in but there is no way to come out mm-hmm. and that's how they will catch yeah. and also with uh, fishing nets the one that you throw sure I learned how to do that uh, the state of Michoacan itself means place of fishermen uh-huh. or place of abundance of fish uh, and this is what the language is in Nahuatl, the language of the Aztecs. We don't know what the indigenous people of Michoacán, the Purepe, just called it. Mm-hmm. We know what they call themselves, which is Purembe, but the Michoacán is a word in, uh, not in Purepecha, but it's in Nahuatl. Huh. Place of fish, or place of fishermen. Huh. And that is because you have not only Lake Chapala, but you have uh, Lagunas de Sirawen, huh. you have... Um, um, two other lakes, Pascuaro, uh-huh. Pascuaro, Sirawen, and uh, there is one more that I'm forgetting. Yeah. So the idea of fish and fishermen and the culture that is around is very yeah. uh, familiar to me. Yeah. I remember that I was uh, growing up and eating these little, tiny little fish that were uh, dry and they were toasted. Uh-huh. And actually in the cantinas, if mm. you were drink a, drinking age, you can have them to go along with your beer or whatever you were drinking as yeah. a snack. Yeah, yeah. Uh, here uh, in the stage you have uh, peanuts or you have something else. Sure. There you have that. Very so specific. fish is very, very much uh, part of, of where I come from and, yeah. and in some ways what I am. Yeah. And uh, the idea of the water and the lakes. Yeah. And the piece itself is very, I think hearing that, like background connection for you that 
you can tell, you know, you could imagine the movement that's happening in in the piece itself, you know, the re- repetitive lines mm-hmm. or the, you know, the hatching kind of crossing from one layer over to the other as like, mm-hmm. you know, you could assume a basket form or just like the mm-hmm. whole action of doing the fishing of, you know, pulling because because the body is he's he's pulling the line mm-hmm. with the fish on it and there's like the tension of it and mm-hmm. i don't know it's it is almost like he's posing also uh-huh. sort of like, here i am i have the fish sure. it's not a humongous fish either so it's not about the size it's sure. just sure. the idea of the fish sure um, yeah. uh that is there um i i fish when i was little once in a great while yeah. i never became a fisherman yeah. it's something that i enjoy that i that i do um we went with these uh friends uh to michigan uh, i don't remember the name of the place uh, uh and we were fishing there and actually uh Olin, uh-huh. uh was also with us fishing and I was the only one that caught three little fish. <laughs> and then Olin was actually jealous of that. Uh, so I don't know what, what it is. You just throw the line. And this was the first time that I used that, this kind of uh, line fishing uh-huh. where you have to throw it so far and then you use the Relay railing to in. do it back. In my hometown, we didn't use that. We actually went to uh, the lake. And in the lake, there is this plant that uh, has sort of like a bulb mm-hmm. that is very buoyant Mm -hmm. and on the top there is some leaves so you cut it and then you can use that (laughs) to tie it onto the line yeah so you more or less estimate how much you want to go from the end where the hook is to more or less how deep the lake may be Uh and then that's where you tie this buoyant uh uh, ball kind of thing yeah and then you throw it and then you see it go up and down when when the fish is buying and then you pull (laughs) that's it so that's how I learned to, to fish. Yeah. Uh, the other way was throwing the, uh, in the lower uh, parts of the lake, uh-huh. throwing the fishing net. Sure, sure. The, a big, the, the a round big. one, the big with that little. In fact, my father used to make them. Uh, I don't know who he learned that from. Yeah. Uh, I remember him working in the house in the patio, and he was weaving with this very fine tool of needles that were made out of like bone. Uh-huh. Uh, they were long like this pointy but they have different parts where he connected and he went in and out and tied huh. uh, I don't know he did it only for himself or he did it for somebody else I don't know uh, uh, yeah but he did many things including uh, growing uh, avocado trees because we had two avocado plants at home that were enough to feed uh, 14 mouths yeah yeah so hmm. So that's uh, the, the, the story. So I don't know if it's some subconsciously some kind of dream and sure. there isn't tequila floating and sure, there's sure. sort of like a whale and uh, some suggested uh, fish on the other side. This kind of looks like a whale too. Yeah. I don't know. These are things that, that, that come to my mind subconsciously when I'm uh, sketching and drawing. I remember sure. being in meetings both when I used to work uh, in the National Museum of Mexican Art for 13 years or as an art teacher for 20, yeah. being in meetings and just sketching, sketching different things. And then sometimes I went back and I saw different things and I thought, okay, I would like to use this and make it larger this size or or larger and add color like this or change this or change the other. Yeah. The yeah. usual thing, I guess. Sure, yeah, the like push and pull of, of how 
you know, an idea comes out and mm-hmm. and wants to be expressed. And I think it's mm-hmm. also interesting, too, just to think about the... Because we had mentioned that it's, you know, it's a, it's a new printing of an older block, but mm-hmm. because it was limited and that's... Because I think we're talking about how we appreciate the, you know, the blocks themselves as mm-hmm. objects and, like, how how much you can see the craft in in the blocks themselves and then mm-hmm. also once you you know print and you know and put all the pieces together right like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the all the intricate interlacing mm-hmm. yeah and also trying to make something that was that is not completely different than the other one but that has completely different feel mm-hmm. uh the first one that i did has a very light uh, greenish turquoise color and goes into a uh, blue mm-hmm. uh not as deep as this sure. uh, uh um, blue and then i think i did uh black or blue brown on top mm-hmm. uh, so <clears throat> with this one i did the darker medium dark blue and then you have the, the bright red uh, on top so it's much more vivid there's more yeah. interaction Color-wise, as well as uh, the patterns. The other one didn't have the, the patterns. It was more clean on the background, those uh, turquoise and blue color background. Yeah. So it uh, definitely breeds a different, a new life. Yeah. And is it is that something you like to do, to, like, rediscover old work and kind of <clears throat> bring it back? or? I was going to uh, uh, Lockport... Um, Illinois to pick up some artwork with his friend Jose Andre when he was driving and we were talking about how he has been he's he's about five years older than me he is he's a, a painter primarily although he does prints yeah. he said that he's been re rethinking about some pieces that he did or wanting to do certain things with certain images that he created yeah. and he recalls uh, uh, things that were said by Picasso by uh, artists of the Renaissance and how they talk about how sometimes as an artist, you may have some idea, but you may not yet possess the the experience of how to create it technically, sure. or you have learning of, or artistic processes to be able to materialize this in the way that you want, so yeah. it kind of lingers that. Yeah. So he says, I've been going back and doing that, and he says, it's funny you're talking about that. Now that I retire, I've been revisiting some of those pieces, and even... Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife says, why are you going back to those old things? Why don't you create some new things? Says, I cannot explain it. It's just, yeah. I see it and I want to do this or I want to do that. Mm-hmm. That I had an idea that I wanted to do and I never did it because of lack of time. And now that I have the time, I'm I'm actually doing it. Yeah. And I'm doing it with these smaller pieces. I have some larger pieces that I want to get to once the studio is uh, uh, back and accessible with the larger uh, etching press. Yeah. Um, but there's just some some things, some feelings that I have that I want to do, not necessarily because of the technical aspect of that. It's just that I uh, have yeah. the idea of wanting to give it another life, or because when I did it, it might have been okay, but I was never really completely satisfied uh-huh. with what I wanted to do. Sure. Uh, you just so it was had to move on and exactly. You know, so I just moved on and did something new, something different. Yeah. Uh, so it probably has also to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, I mean, it's always a, a kind of give and take process. It's, if if you like, you know, if you like what you're doing, because then you can 
make the time eventually and come back to things. I think there was, there is a, I feel like I've been bringing it up a lot recently, but there was an artist who came to talk when I was at Skidmore that, uh, she just talked about like writing all your ideas down, just, Mm -hmm. just like trying to keep some kind of record, whether it be a sketch or, you know, language that you found interesting or, um, Mm -hmm. just like a connection that you made and write it down and record it. And even if it doesn't become a fully fledged piece, you have that record that you might come back to like in an old sketchbook or a piece of paper or a, or a piece that you started and didn't finish. put, you know, in yeah, finish mm-hmm. and, you know, execute fully to the extent that you thought mm-hmm. you were going to. And I think that, I don't know, I think that also speaks to a part of print that I have like been really interested in and we were talking about you know flyers and things like that it's the part of print that can be like ephemeral and and kind of go out into the world and then Mm -hmm. someone could find it or you know interact Mm -hmm. with it in a way Mm -hmm. and you know it's not directly the same thing but just the idea that that is possible is Mm -hmm. is a neat thing to interact with an object outside of the context that it might like necessarily have been expected to be in in the mm-hmm. first place maybe yeah it's uh one of the things that i've been doing lately not only uh reworking some of those those uh, uh cuts that i did before but also going back to some of my older sketchbooks uh mm-hmm. that i that i have and finding things that i said ah so this is what i can do with this uh-huh, uh-huh. things that i never did anything with you know ideas images uh uh, that are there that are just in a quick sketch uh, form sure uh, so I've been uh, working a lot from from those more than new recent ones is going back to some of those uh, sketches that are there that I sometimes am surprised that I did them or that I have no memory of me ever <laughs> doing them yeah and yeah. bringing them to life and giving them a new state of being yeah I feel like it's a good place to leave it off yep thank you for having this conversation i really appreciate it and it was it was really fun too i really enjoyed it (laughs) can do it again some other time yeah for sure thank Um, you thanks for listening everybody and um stay tuned and also we're gonna have a link to uh the image that we're talking about too so people can check it out you know if you want to look at it while you're listening or you come back to it later and look at it you know whatever floats your boat uh or fisherman fisherman's vessel of whatever whatever kind (laughs) you can find renee's artwork at arceopress.com We've also included a link to Fisherman's Dream in the show notes. Atlan's work can be found at atlanaw.com. Thank you again to Atlan and Renee for contributing to the CPG's oral history. The music for the series, Tinkering Inside the Edition, was created by Sonnenzimmer, Nick Butcher, and Nadine Nakanishi. The series artwork was created by Todd Irwin of Bitmap Press.